Hi, I'm Otto. Welcome to Ellen Sarah's podcast. All right, well, this episode is uh, just what the doctor ordered for me, for sure. And, yeah. And for Aaron and for you guys, because we talk. S- Please just only only speak for yourself. Oh, okay. On today's episode, we are talking to Jessica Baum. She is a psychotherapist and the author of Anxiously Attached, which is... Become, it has the title has more to it. Anxiously attached, becoming more secure in life and love. Mm-hmm. Guys, we talk about different attachment styles, why you have a different attachment style. If you have one, what kind of partner you should be with. Um, I think attachment styles can help you learn a lot about yourself, a lot about mm-hmm. how you maneuver in a relationship. I think it can help you become aware of why you are the way you are. It can help you. It gives you tools. Also, like with friend, you know, you have an attachment style with friendships, too, that she talks about. All of it. Yeah. I mean, rela- relationships in general with your kids, with your parents, with your spouse, with your partner, whatever it is. So I think you should definitely uh, stick around to, to listen to this episode. Yeah. Agree. It's a great one. All right, guys. Enjoy. Do we need this episode? Yes, we do. <laughs> Hi, Jessica. Yes, we do. Hi. Um, sorry that we were starting late. I won't name names, you know, of who was dragging us behind, wow. but there was someone who was, you just, you literally just missed. It was actually perfect for this podcast. You just missed Sarah's eight-year-old curled up in her lap, sad because Sarah's going out of town and and stressing out because she's become um, very scared of people driving at night. So she refuses to leave the house at night because she's scared of driving at night for some reason. So a lot of things happen in your childhood that you don't even know how you're fucking your kids up. And let me also just say, going out of town, I'm going to Vegas for like five hours. I mean, my kids are so, they're so spoiled. (laughs) No, they're so spoiled. I was talking to my mom about it. I was like, I'm the mom. I have no social life. I don't go out at night. I don't take girls trips. So when I do, it's like they think their world is ending. So I don't know. Maybe we can sprinkle this conversation in somewhere. How old are they? Eight Eight and eight and 13. So I wonder what kind of uh, what kind of attachment styles I'm you're giving them. Yeah. Okay, well, let's just start by giving you, Jessica, the floor to tell our audience about who you are and how you got to where you are today and how you became so focused on um, attachment styles. And um, I know personally that this is a conversation uh, women in my life have. I don't know if men are having it as often. Maybe you can give more insight into that. But um, I feel like when I was single and I was desperate to figure out what was going wrong and why I couldn't figure out the right relationship and why I was always picking the wrong people. Um, I really learned about my attachment style and it made a lot of sense to me, but I didn't fully know how to fix it. And so talk to us about your background and like how you became so interested in this. Sure. So I'm Jessica Baum. I'm, for those listening, I'm a psychotherapist and I have a practice here in Palm Beach and a coaching company. And I think, I mean, I share a lot in my book that I had personal struggles throughout my um, my early years dating and, you know, failed relationships and patterns that were coming up. And I also entered the field and uh, through a couple of relationships, I did some couples counseling, like a Mago counseling. So I learned a lot about how our patterns get repeated. It was very eye-opening for me. I also worked with addiction and 
with families. So a lot of codependency. And then I started to study interpersonal neurobiology and through my own struggle of being like, I'm codependent, which is such a loaded word. Right. And I think it's used and really there's a lot of shame for me, at least attached to it. I was like, I need to get to the bottom of this. Like, what is this really about? And it's really about attachment styles and how we adapted to survive. And as I dove into interpersonal neurobiology, I was like, oh, I had so much more compassion for myself and the dynamics that would show up in my own relationships. And then I started helping couples and helping individuals kind of work through their patterns and start to see, you know, their behaviors in new light and start to heal their attachment wounds. You know, I don't know that there's any fixing. There's a lot of holding and understanding where the root is. And when we have more of a capacity to be with parts of ourselves, we have an easier time or more tolerance or a better way to respond when we're in relationships, if we're lucky. It's what you just said really struck a chord with me because I started therapy for the first time three years ago. Like I did not even consider the the, the journey of healing until three years ago. And I would almost say that, that it's given me as to what you just said, compassion for myself, that is almost, that is almost the the biggest healing factor of this whole journey. Not even the, um, not even the daily work that we do, but just the overall macro feeling of having compassion for myself. My therapist, my, my life coach is, is what he is by dissecting the past has really given me compassion for myself, which inadvertently then is healing. And I just, uh, for people listening who are contemplating that, the journey, I think that's just, you hit the nail on the head with the having compassion for yourself. For sure. And I think a lot is shifting out of shame, you know, and, and as we start to understand our own story and really kind of dive in and see ourselves in another light, we develop this compassion for ourselves, which then makes us have so much more compassion for everyone else. Cause we start to understand human behavior and you know, my book talks about all these behaviors that show up in our romantic relationships that seem like crazy, but they're really <laughs> not crazy when you start to understand interpersonal neurobiology and attachment and what we do to stay connected because connect connection is our biological imperative. Without it, we mm-hmm. can't survive. So, you know, we'll do a lot of things early on and, and learn a lot of adaptive strategies and our nervous systems will become primed in a certain way. And all of those things get carried on later in our romantic life and kind of come up and show up in all kind of creative ways. And so it's really important to develop this sense of compassion for why, why is this behavior even here? So Jessica, tell us about attachment styles. Obviously we, we, I think that a focus probably is typically on anxiously attached people because they're the people who want to figure it out the most, I'm assuming, and are very anxious about it. So how, how, what is an anxiously attached person? What's a avoidant? What, and how do we, how do we get there? First of all, I don't even know how many, how many attachment styles are there? There's typically four categories. Um, when you really understand the science, we have more than one embedded in us and we can show up differently with a combination of different people. So we have our embedded patterns and they can, we're going to try to put them into four categories, which I'll explain to you guys. And then those patterns get played out with the other person's patterns. So it can show up definitely in combination. So you can be more anxious with your partner and more avoidant or more secure with a friend. It really depends on two people's embedded patterns. But attachment patterns get laid down in early our earliest years. And many people listening might be like, oh, I had a great parents and this and that. But 
has a lot to do with your parents' nervous system, their level of consistency, what they chose to focus on. So primarily, there are a lot of secure people, a good bunch of people, 50%, maybe 60%. I think the statistics are going down, actually, are secure. And and they have an easier time getting close. And they have an easier time with abandonment. Isn't it so funny how... I think to people in my friend group or people peripherally that I know that would appear to be the greatest parents ever, right? And I'm sure for them, they're like, oh, I'm not giving my kid any issues or any kind of uh, abandonment or anxious, anxious attachments, you know, parenting or anything like that, because I'm present. I have them in 900 classes after school. I'm pushing them to the, be the best. I'm always home. And it's like, no, you're definitely also fucking them up. Just because as parents, you think that you're you're around, you're not abusive, you love them, you're showing up, doesn't mean that you're not giving your child Well, also, I think, issues. Jessica, you can enlighten, you can enlighten this, us to this, but I also think that probably the parents that are overdoing it, overly validating their kids, overly, you know, complimenting them, overly giving them all the answers to all of their questions and making sure that they're never upset or hurt because they're trying to fill some void in their own childhood or their own life. You know, sometimes you inadvertently make your child more insecure and more anxious because that's kind of your own anxieties being being displayed. Right. So take us through it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great topic. I mean, part of being a good parent is letting your your child suffer and hold the suffering or the discomfort with them rather than, you know, trying to fix it for them all the time. Then they never develop a capacity to be with those emotions. And that has a lot to do with the parent's inability to be with those emotions and hold that type of space. And also pushing your child too much to be an achiever is very left shifted. And it really discounts the emotional experience inside and And it, you know, programs them to be, you know, human doers and disconnects them from some of their authentic self. So both those things are problems. Um, But the three insecure styles are avoidant, anxious, and fearful. And so to have more of a, a avoidant attachment style, your parent is a little bit more left shifted. And what I mean by that, they're focused, they can be there for you. They're focused on getting your needs met, but they're not as attuned emotionally to the child's needs. And so eventually the child learns to be more like independent or they give up on reaching out. That's a true end of the avoidance scale. And there's varying degrees of all of this all on a spectrum. And then an anxious person, um, there's the, I would say the hallmark is inconsistency. So they don't receive consistent parenting and they tend to self, like the baby reaches out a lot or they can even sense what the parent is feeling. And like, that's where self-abandonment comes in in order to stay in connection. They can feel your anxiety. They can feel your, whatever's going on in you. And there's more to that, but it's always like the the ball's going to drop. Am I always going to get my needs met? I, you know, I can't rely on this. So there's a sense of, I would say a sense of inconsistency, but there's so much more, but that was the hallmark. And then fearful, they, they get stuck the most. They're almost, and I, I have a pocket of fearful that I got in touch with when you're healing, you can have pockets of everything, but it's when you can't run towards your primary caregiver, but you really can't run away. So as a baby, we're completely dependent. So if you're, if you have trauma or abuse or your primary caregiver isn't available or you're scared, you can't run towards, or you can't run away. So you get kind of trapped, you get in a trapped feeling. And so fearful, really struggles the most with closeness and they they struggle a lot with um, abandonment. So 
And we can have like, I, I, you can be anxious with avoidant protectors. You can be more, I can be more anxious with one person and more avoidant with the other. Like we have these combinations with people all the time. Yeah. That's the thing when I was single and trying to figure it out, cause I'd read a book about this and I thought like, okay, well, I don't know which one I am because if I would meet a guy that I liked and he was very clearly avoidant, I would become super anxiously attached to him. And then if I met someone who I liked and they clearly became anxiously attached to me, I would become extremely avoidant. And so I didn't really know how to fix it. Cause I was like, I don't know what I'm like, which one to lean into. Right. Right. And, and all of that is around like a fear of intimacy um, you know, and struggling. So the more secure you can be, the more someone who's anxious doesn't quite activate you or someone who's avoidant doesn't quite activate you can kind of understand that they're in their shit and it doesn't upset you anymore. Like I'm, you know, I tend to think of myself as moving towards more secure. And if someone shuts down, I still have these anxious parts that come up, but I'm able to work with those parts and help her and kind of get through it rather than to be more reactive in the relationship. I almost feel like having an emotionally unavailable parent is almost more destructive to shaping who you are than having a parent who's like volatile. I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, but there's something about, you know, and Aaron and I have great relationships with our mom and dad, and we've been open about, you know, nobody's perfect, all of our shortcomings, but in general, I've been speaking with a lot of friends. We've been really unpacking sort of, you know, where our shit came from. And a common theme is having one emotionally unavailable parent. And I think that that really fucks you up. Yeah, it's so, sorry. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. So when you're looking at trauma and you're really looking at the root, like neglect is really hard. And so your parent could even be there, but if they're emotionally unavailable and checked out, the baby can sense the lack of connection And to be a child, and a lot of people listening to this might not love to hear this, but more damage is done in terms of developmentally if you're being neglected than if you're being abused. If you're being abused, at least you're an object in the world. At least you matter enough to be acknowledged to exist. You exist. If you're being neglected, we have a non-existent wound, which is extremely painful to re-experience as an adult and work through that trauma, but it's actually easier to, because at least if I'm being abused, they must care about me enough. That's so, that's so fucked up to even, sorry for my language. That's so messed up to even wrap your head around that reality. It is. And I definitely struggled with some neglect in my childhood. And it's like, it really, it is hard to rewire that. It's a lot harder to rewire neglect wounds than it is the others. But, you know, people listening will be like, I'd rather be neglected than be beaten. And it's like, all of it sucks. You know, all of it sucks. Do you think that a healthy relationship can repair these things? I mean, Sarah and I had the same childhood, but very different childhoods because we just had different experiences. We were different ages and we pulled different things from them. And so um, like I went to therapy for most of my life because I was always wanting to figure this stuff out. And so by the time I met my husband, I was 36 almost. And I was like much more fully formed as a person. You know, Sarah met her partner much younger. And um, and I chose someone who's securely attached. I don't know how the fuck I pulled that off because I had never dated anyone like that before, but I managed to do it. Thank God. No, this guy, this guy is the poster child for securely attached. And guess what? You look at his parents. You look at his mm-hmm. parents this guy's childhood, I'm sorry, was like textbook. Tech, not no, per- not it, perfect. No, it, no, no. Yeah, no, no. Not perfect, but textbook to parents 
who were emotionally available 24 hours a day. Yeah. But, but for me, I was just going to say that, um, that obviously I had to get myself there to be attracted to someone who could be securely attached because I'd never been attracted to that before. Um, and of course there's bumps along the way when you, you know, I would storm out of a room and I would say crazy shit in an argument. And he would be like, no, 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 no. We don't do things that way. Like you can't speak to me that way, or you can't run away when we're fighting or you can't, whatever the things were. I learned a lot. And I really feel like it healed so many of my things because I am securely attached in my marriage. You know, I don't feel like my old shit come up the way that it it did for so many years with so many different people. And I don't feel triggered by my childhood stuff the same way. I'm able to have a distance from it. Like my dad can say something to me that, that would have, you know, made me cry five years ago. And instead I can kind of hear it and be like, okay, I kind of understand where that's coming from and I know what it is and it sits over here. It doesn't like attach itself to my body. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like I feel a distance. So are you asking if that's because of the healing you've done on your own through therapy or because you married somebody who sees you 100% and now that is valid? Yeah, I think that validates you. You don't need your dad's validation or your mom's validation because you get everything you think you need from your husband. I just feel rewired in some ways. You know, I feel like I've, it's been reaffirmed over and over again, this like securely attached energy and relationship I have. And so I feel like it's kind of helped me be a different person. Like I don't feel as reactive to certain things. Jessica, do you call bullshit or do you agree with this? Oh, I totally agree. And I think that's so amazing. And I think it's both. I think I tell people if they're in insecure relationships to go do the work anyway, because it's those relationships that bring the work up for us to do. And if you can find a relationships where you can form a more secure attachment, you're absolutely rewiring your brain. And so he gave you a wonderful gift and you obviously worked really hard to get to a place and some of your old stuff came up and it takes about 18 months to get attached mm-hmm. to someone. And after that period, you can start to really settle in. And it's mm-hmm. like such a beautiful story. And I'm, I'm so incredibly happy for you because Thank you. so many people fit in, you know, are struggling, you know, that's why I wrote the book. So many people are struggling and looking for that. And you're right. Like if you don't do the work or you don't really know much, a secure person is going to feel pretty boring to you. There's yes. not going to be a lot of a charge or an allure. And so it's hard. And so that's why it's like not the chicken or the egg. I mean, do do take the agency and do the work wherever you're at to start to look mm-hmm. inward and what's being activated inside of you. And then hopefully, yeah, you can meet someone who's more of a match somewhere in the middle and it's not as a roller coaster as you're used to. Not to say that like you meet that person and it's just smooth sailing from day one. I mean, there were so many times where Simon would have like a natural emotional reaction to something. And I would look at him like, what are you doing? Like, pull your shit together. What, why are you being emotional about that? You're sad about it. You feel guilty about that. Like, get your, like, I had no patience for it. But you would also threaten the relationship. You guys would get into a fight and this was, um, this is our childhood shit. You guys would get into a fight and you'd be like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here, right? He'd be like, no, no, you, you can't go to a 10. We just got into a fight about the air conditioning. You can't threaten the relationship, right? Yeah. Yeah. But what I'm saying is I didn't have a lot of tolerance for healthy emotions, Mm -mm. you know, because he was comfortable being emotional. He was comfortable sitting in vulnerability or a moment that made him sad and saying it was sad. And to me, I was like, that's weak. What are you doing? Like hide that from me. You should be embarrassed to have that feeling right now. And he was like, I'm not. And that was, the point is it was very uncomfortable. It's not like you meet that person and all of a sudden you're healed. It's, it's very uncomfortable to be around vulnerability if you haven't been exposed to that or been taught that it's weak or whatever. And, and it it does still take pushing through those things. So it's not like one solve. 
Absolutely. I mean, and I did more of the work, not in a relationship, but with my therapist. So becoming more vulnerable with, with a person who's capable of holding that for you, no matter if it's romantic therapist or a really good friend, that is the key to starting to build security is becoming more vulnerable, sitting in more of your stuff, not hiding it, not fixing it, not trying to control it, but like finding safe people. And if it happens to be a romantic partner, that's great. And that's what I do couples counseling to help people kind of get there with each other. So all of that is music to my ears for you, Erin. I'm constantly in search of tools and places to help center me, to help me feel more calm, more productive. It's why I love companies like Open. Okay, so Open is a platform that houses tons of meditations. It teaches you, I don't know if you've ever heard of breath work, but my mother has been doing breath work for God knows how long. We used to always make fun of her for doing it. Turns out it's life-changing. Turns out she was right. She's right about everything, unfortunately. Breath work, I'm gonna say it to you right now, can change your life. This morning, I was not okay. I was losing my mind. I was just, you know, not the best version of myself. So I went on open and I downloaded, I swear to God, a 30 second breath work exercise, or maybe it was a minute long of just following this, by the way, this very soothing Australian accent is what guided me. I felt so much better. So, you know, I love that they have one place where you can where you can go to start your morning. Maybe you want to do a breathwork session to center you for the day. And then at night, you want to do a, a meditation to help you fall asleep. Um, it's really all in one place. So I would 100% implement this into your practices and just make it part of your life. All right, if you want to make this part of your daily routine, you can get 30 days free of open by visiting withopen.com slash foster. Again, that is 30 days free by visiting withopen.com slash foster. It's as if I'm a total broken record at this point, which is fine because I know what I like. I know what works for me. And honestly, I know what other people like. And Jenny Kane Home is... The chicest, nicest, whether it's her throws, her candles, obviously her furniture, they're just statement pieces that are so classic and they're just things that you will have forever. You can go big and get a sofa from her and it'll be the best sofa you've ever had. Or you can buy her candles and give them as gifts and people will be like, wow, that is such a thoughtful gift. There's just something about the world that she's created with her designs, they're just so on point and obviously so in demand. You know, a lot of people are really wanting to upgrade their whole tablescape game, okay? So this is also a great thing for you to do with Jenny Kane Home. She has a whole dinnerware collection. She has the tablecloths. She has the, the trinkets that go on top. Like she has all the things to make your tablescape look just so above and beyond. Also, they have this incredible rewards program where you can earn up to 10% back with every single purchase, okay? And you can join for, it's totally free to join. So really you have no excuse to uh, 
not get on this Jenny Kane train. Find the perfect home pieces at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use code FOSTER15 at checkout. That is 15% off your first order. Go to J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code FOSTER15. My therapist is always like, Sarah, you are never going to have the healthy connections that give you life, meaning like platonic, my, my, like my girlfriends, things like this. He goes, you have to reveal yourself. He's like a part of yourself. He's like, when you go out to a party, I don't want you to just stand there or have small talk. Find one person at the party, find one woman that maybe you've met in the past or you want to get to know better and reveal just a little part of yourself. Don't sit there and start crying to her, but reveal just a little part of yourself and it will connect you to in a way that you've never experience because vulnerability is a huge topic in my sessions because I mean, I don't know how Aaron feels about this, but I don't feel like we were raised. I mean, I know we were not raised with healthy intimacy and connect and that kind of healthy connection. Like I, I look my daughters in the eye. I grab their face. I make them look me in the eye and tell me they love me. And I say to them, I love you. And if any of them say love you, I go, no, I love you. Say, you know, I'm so obsessed and we can talk about if that's maybe fucking them up, but I want them to feel so safe and comfortable revealing themselves and making eye contact. Adding to what you're saying, I think, you know, we grew up in a household or separate households, divorced parents with one parent that was extremely emotional and vulnerable. But not to us. I felt like on her own. Sure. And one parent who really hated that about her. You know, well, I felt like she was, you know, vulnerable towards us. And one parent who really hated that about her and rejected it and, you know, didn't want us to be vulnerable. So it was a lot of mixed messages of this person's there for us all the time. And she's, you know, our mom and she's raising us 24 seven, but she's really emotional. And this parent hates how emotional she is and it keeps pushing him away. So that's going to drive somebody away. So I think it was just a lot of confusing mixed messages that we've had to undo. Right. We were like, oh, if you're emotional, no one's going to like you. If you're emotional and vulnerable, no one will like you. And we've talked about this on the podcast and we've done so much healing, but you know, we grew up with a dad who always told us to toughen up if we ever had an emotion verbatim, you know, toughen up, which now as an adult, I can understand his pain that that's how he grew up. He grew up having to be tough. He grew up at 13 like leaving the home, you know? I mean, he he had his own stuff that the only way that he knew how to survive and make it was by being tough. So it's so complicated, but... But, but having compassion for your parents, it's gotta be ha- a big part of the healing, right? I, I think that's part of the process. Like, I think first you go through like, what the hell did my parents do to me feeling? And you go through a lot. And then I think we're looking at intergenerational trauma. And now you're starting to see that your parents have wounded parts and what did they not get? And how to, you know, and so they are giving you the best that they can and, and, you know, and they're giving you the advice that they give to themselves inside their head. So if that's the advice he gave himself to survive, that's what he's going to give you to survive, but that's really harmful advice. So the impact is not great, but the intention is I just want to help my girls the way I know how to survive. So you know, there's so many layers. I would say through my own healing, there was a period where I was angry at my parents. And I think that's normal because you're validating you didn't get your needs met. 
there were some major needs not getting met. And then I think when you do more of the compassion and you shift to more, you start to see, oh my God, my parents are like little people in there too, and are suffering and are trying to survive and make the best of the world. And you start to see them in a new light and it, it shifts. Eventually it shifts and it's all a, a process, but you know, I don't think anyone is intentionally most of the time trying to hurt Mm-mm. the other person. Mm-hmm. No, 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 but it takes time to realize that. I'm sure as a parent, Jessica, do you have kids? No, but I've been a stepmom. So I, I kind of get all of that. By the way, being a stepmom is, I mean, in, in my opinion, way harder than probably being even a mom. I mean, it adds so many added layers to that. We had many stepmoms. So we're very, we're very, we're very like, it heals our wounds when we see a woman being a nice stepmom. It just heals something for us because we didn't have a lot of that. I feel like it, like being a stepmom healed something profound in me. I didn't know I, I would like it. And it took me many years and I honestly opened my eyes up to so much. So I'm so grateful for that experience. Well, that's beautiful. We we love seeing seeing that happen because it's not easy. It can push a lot of people's buttons. Let's talk about well, I read in your um, information that you have studied and learn and you work in CBT and DBT. Ooh. Um, so I do DBT therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. Am I right in that, Jessica? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of CBT, and and DBT is phenomenal. But like, go ahead, ask your question because okay, I so I lo- so I've been in therapy, like I said, a lot of my life, and. Um, and I have found the biggest progress for myself from doing DBT the last two years. Um, and it's just, I've found myself, instead of just spending an hour kind of talking about myself in ways that were sort of in circles and talking about my childhood in different ways that felt very similar, um, it feels much more action oriented and it's really helpful because it gives me real proper tools. And I have homework every week that is like super tangible and I'm, I'm given help on exactly how to handle it. When I'm in a conversation, I feel like a surge of reactiveness and I want to yell or I want to say something that's going to make me embarrassed later. And, um, and being more comfortable, being uncomfortable, you know, facing things that I would typically avoid. It's just felt like I've made leaps and bounds in my own growth from DBT and, and what's different about DBT, um, I think at its core than regular talk therapy is you really aren't spending a lot of time looking at the past, right? It's a jump off point, but you really pay attention to what you can do about it now. It's not the, it's not the why, but it's the how, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I love it. Tell, I mean, is that something that you believe in and work with? In a practical sense? Yes. To, live a life of less reactivity and sure it kind of creates more dual awareness. So like it creates more space within your inner world to respond or look at your internal um, reactions differently. And it gives you some tools, which makes you feel like you're really in control at times that can feel like really out of control. I have moved closer to more somatic work and like connecting really to the body and then actually to the root rather than like trying to get out of it all the time. It's like, let's bring it and hold it and be in it. So it's actually the opposite of some of that. But I understand that none of that really is effective when we're everyday, we're in our everyday life. So I'm like, okay, so like use the DBT skills or use what you can, but remember what, what, what came up in you and then bring it to someone who can actually go there with you. So, and hold it and go to the root of it and be in it with you. And like, so for me that, and where in your body does it live and start to connect it? Cause I'm all about embodiment and somatic work. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm bottom up more or less, but 
those are also great tools. I'm I'm not a fan of straight CB, uh, like just talk therapy. I I just don't think if you're not connecting it to you know sensations in your body or to the root, it can get you through. But you're not really going to the possible embedded trauma or the core. Well, when I do DBT, my therapist um, does a lot of body work. I would say I mean I don't oh, know what kind of body work in the sense that when I get like you know animated about something, he's like, okay take a minute, close your eyes and feel everything you're feeling right now. And I'm like, uh, I'm like in the middle of a sentence, you know? And he's like, close your eyes and feel everything. Just feel it. Just go do a checklist of your body. Are your fists tight? Is your heart racing faster? Are you holding on really, you know, like what are your feelings and really feel it. And it, it does kind of help me realize how like physical the emotions really are. So I think I, I think I get a good combination of those two. And I think if it works for you, like I think everybody finds what works for them and we're all, you know, and if it works for you, that's great. You know, and he's checking to see if you're in your sympathetic, if you're being activated in that moment, making you more conscious of, of your activation rather than just rambling off. I think a lot of people are having, are really fatigued in this era of self-healing and working on yourself. I think people don't know where to start. I think people don't know what to do. I think that we're in a position where we have access to all these incredible people through our podcast and through whatever, but most people listening are like, how am I supposed to, what does that even mean? Like working on yourself? Like, how do you even, how do you even begin? And most people have, I mean, Aaron, we talk about our childhood and our, our, we stop saying trauma because we realize like, that's probably not the word we should use to describe our childhood. But I think people just don't know where to begin. I think that's a really good point. I remember I was with someone and he's like, what do you mean do the work? Yeah. And, you know, there's that book, you know, do the work out there. And I think, and I feel strongly about this, like you're not going to know what that means unless you have safe enough places and safe enough people to get vulnerable with. And until you have that level of vulnerability and safety in your nervous system and meet someone else's nervous system that has the capacity to hold what might surface for you, And then you get really effing uncomfortable and you're like, oh, this is the work. I'm going to go everywhere. I've probably spent most of my life avoiding. Then you start to get okay. And it's an unfolding and there is no linear way. It's, it's a, it's a process that, I I mean, I, I can't say when the work ends, there's a point where it gets a little bit easier. If you're looking at embedded trauma, you're looking at your implicit information from your body shooting up to your brain and becoming more conscious and more embodied. And that can be a couple year process of things just surfacing because you feel safe enough in your body saying, now you can remember this. Now you're going to re-experience this. Oh, that trigger that you had with your partner or whatever, it's actually activated this earlier wound or this nervous system response. And now you have safe enough places to become more conscious and aware. And you're very fortunate if you're in one of those positions where you're not in survival mode of your life and you're able to kind of really look at the stuff and have safe enough places to go and and bring this information to. I mean, I know that when I started doing the work, I was like, I get it now. The work is hard. It's really hard. But Aaron, you like, like you get excited to do therapy. Like for me, I'm like, I dread it. And I love my life coach, my therapist. I love him. Um, And he's helped me so much, but that hour before leading up to it, I'm, I'm stressed. I'm just like, oh my God, I'm tired. I become exhausted already. Cause I just preparing for the work. 
you know, and I just, it's, I think it's probably a good sign that you feel that way. Cause you know, you have a therapist who's going to really push you for that hour. And it's like, if you're just breezing through it and like paying the bill, then you're not really growing. Like it should be uncomfortable. Right. I think if the therapist is holding consistent enough, consistent space, what comes up is supposed to come up rather than fixing you. Um, you're going to start to become vulnerable. And then if it's a good enough therapist and they hold the space, it's, it's going to get uncomfortable. And I, I'm, someone who identifies as anxious. I'm in the field. I believe that everyone should do the work. And there have been plenty of times that I'm like, oh, therapy today. Like, oh, this, I don't know if it's going to be hard. One of those hard days, achy days, easy days. And not every day is hard, but it's about being present with whatever really is surfacing. And that is terrifying for most mm-hmm. people. When I started three years ago, I like vulnerability. I just, I can't express enough to the listeners, you know, who are mostly women, but definitely a handful of men, that when I got in touch with my vulnerability, when I tapped into my vulnerable side, it opened up so many more doors for me from, from all aspects of my life. Like I always associated being vulnerable with being a weak loser. Like truly, it's like, if I reveal myself, if I admit that I'm scared, if I admit that things aren't going great, if I admit I'm not that happy, if I, then that person will look down on me. That person then will have this opinion of me. And I'm like, God, I wasted so many years with that mindset. I would have had such healthier, stronger female friendships. Because who wants to attach to someone who's like, everything's perfect all the time. Yeah, I wake up. I'm just like impressed with myself all day long. I I do it right. I get it right every time, every day. It's like no one can- can Yeah, but I'm avoidant. I'm an avoidant. I'm not even an anxious. Well, we can get into- the specificity. So let's talk about, you know, people listening, thinking about, okay, I I guess I'm probably this one or that one. And I'm sure this is a very big answer, but you know, people want to know how to break the cycle. Yeah. I mean, again, breaking the cycle is being with what comes up when you're in relationship with someone who can help you connect to the earlier place in which the wound was formed and holding those sensations, whether they're in your gut a lot of avoidant tends to have sensation in the gut. There's a lot of fear, memory stuck there. Anxious people can have a lot in the heart. We can have them in both. Uh, we store loss of connection. We also store joy and wonderful things in our heart space. But these memory centers, um, when they get activated in our close relationships, it's about being with them and connecting them to the root and holding that so that we can re-experience the original wounding with a nervous system that can hold the space. And I, you know, I was going to say like the vulnerability thing is so right. And I, you know, I guess I didn't always know that I wasn't vulnerable. And the more that you're vulnerable, the more you realize you build these deeper relationships with everything. And Brene Brown has done so much research around people who actually have happier lives are the people who have stepped into their vulnerability. Like there's pure research around that yet it's terrifying. Like for your father to be vulnerable is a terrifying thing, especially for men. Um, and they, they suffer the worst because they're really not given permission. I have a friend and he, he recently told me, he's like, you know, women say that, that they want us to be vulnerable. And then the second that we're vulnerable, they don't want us to be vulnerable. And, and there's so much sadness around that statement in terms of like, the more we can be vulnerable with ourselves and give each other permission to be vulnerable, the more connected and interconnected and the, the quality of our relationships will just thrive. And yet it is scary. And by the way, all the securely attached men and women I know had parents who were vulnerable. 
because they had safety in their childhood to be vulnerable, right? And so this is where we look at intergenerational trauma and it is trauma. Yeah. Why is everyone anxious? Why is, why does everyone have anxiety right now? It feels like everybody is anxiously attached. I think we just live in a very, in a world that has a lot of legitimate fear. We have a, we live in a world where we're, we're developing more left hemisphere based and we're more, you know, survival mode. We're just living in a very fearful place. And the truth is the world got wars going on. We got a lot of things going on. Yeah. The world, but the world is a scary place. Technology has like replaced a lot of intimacy and connection. And in that, like replacing face-to-face intimacy and connection, we are actually breeding more anxiety um, within each other. We actually really need to be connecting more in different ways. So there's a lot of reasons why we're moving towards more insecure types. I just need to say quickly, because I have a 13-year-old, they are the future. If you saw how they're learning to... to um, connect to other people. It is the scariest thing you have ever seen. They leave voice notes on a speed of a hundred. So every, every voice note they hear is right. They send pictures of one eyeball. They do not. I'm so terrified. And this is not just the kids at my daughter's school. This is, this is this generation. Okay. I can't even imagine like what, what is going to happen in 10 years when they're the ones in charge around here. It is such a joy to talk to you guys about Exponent. You obviously know we're investors in the company, but let me explain what that means. We are not getting paid by Exponent. We pay them, okay? We believe in the company so much that we pay them to own just a little piece of the business because we know that it works And I would go as far as to say they are the best serums out there. Okay. We invested in this company because the founder, Liz Whitman, did clinical studies for years proving that most other skincare products, the efficacy is gone. Okay. Which means it is not working after a very short period of time and your hands get in it, you tamper with it. It's not doing the job that you think it is doing. In comes Exponent, okay? There are patented skincare serums just filled with all the anti-aging ingredients. It's mixed with the highest potency hyaluronic serum. So you're really getting two for the price of one. You know, people just buy hyaluronic standalone to use. This is a dual, you're getting both. You're getting the vitamin C, the retinol, also the hyaluronic in one dose. You mix them together. I can't speak highly enough about this stuff. You ask me what I do for my skin. Exponent is morning and night. I also do other things, but these are the serums I do morning and night. They have the firming one, which is incredible. It's the CoQ10 serum, which reduces fine lines, wrinkles, and it just firms the crap out of your skin. I love the CoQ10. The vitamin C is also the best on the market, which you know all the effects of vitamin C. So this is your perfect time to try because we're offering you a really great deal. Our listeners are getting 20% off Exponent Beauty. Go to exponentbeauty.com. This is our exclusive code. Nobody else has this. Fosters 20. That's exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, beauty.com. Use the code Fosters 20 for a full 20% off. Guys, just do it. I promise. 
I know a lot of people say like, oh, I've been using this for so long about products. I swear to God on my life, I've been using Vegamore for so many years. I can't even tell you. The first product I was introduced to in the line was the lash serum. Best lash serum out there. It's a clean lash serum. All the other ones are filled with tons of crap, tons of chemicals. This one is not. I also use it on my eyebrows. You will see a difference very, very fast, okay? As you know, if you listen to this podcast, Vegamore is cruelty-free, never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Um, the proof is in the pudding, you guys. It works. Look at all the reviews. Look at all the before and afters. So now they have a grow hair serum. The results of the serum are really incredible. You're going to see more fullness, more thickness, less shedding. They even have a stay away gray protocol, which I don't know. I mean, there really are things you can do, I think, to keep your hair strong and not go gray. There are things you can do. So I'm super curious about their go gray. Um, I do have it. I think you got to be consistent with it, but everybody says it really works. Oh, their shampoo, their conditioner, they, anything hair, they've got you covered. So elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash foster. Use the code foster at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash foster, code foster to save 20% on your first order, vegamore.com slash foster code foster. Okay. There's a really interesting question here from social that uh, I think is probably helpful for people to understand. How can you tell if you really just don't like someone versus you're being avoidant? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so if the reasons you don't like them are because they're showing up and they're consistent and they're interested in you. <laughs> That's your issue, girl. <laughs> yeah, those sound like terrible qualities. <laughs> but they're warm and receptive and responsive. And all of a sudden you don't like them. You might want to be checking in. Like maybe you only go for the person who's inconsistent and hard to get and unavailable. And so you kind of want to look at why, why am I not attracted to this person? Um, and then, you know, there's, there's chemistry and allure that you just can't get around, right? And so, so there's so many variables. It's not just a black and white response. But if someone's being available and consistent and warm and receptive and you're like, ew, get away from me, <laughs> you know, you might be turning down someone who is more secure or more available or you might be picking up on something. You might just be picking up on something. So we don't really know. And, you know, especially with people who pursue a lot in the beginning, like I've been a victim of that where like, oh, they seem really available and they seem really great, but they're really love bombing you. You know, like it's really hard to tell. And I think that's when you have friends and family and sounding boards to be like, you know, I've been in a situation where like a friend is like, you should, why don't you stick this out a little longer? He's probably just nervous or whatever. And it's been like a blessing. Or, you know, you should really listen to that inner, I had a, a experience once I woke up in the middle of the night, I was like, I can't go on another date with this guy. Like there was an intuition inside of me that was like, no, you know? So there's so many factors because our gut can be trauma related. It also can be part of our intuition. And that's why you have safe people to process like your dating experiences with that can hold a mirror up to you and say, hey, you know, maybe this is more about you than them. 
I'm all for living Mm -hmm. your 20s and having great experiences and all those things. But let me tell you something. The amount of years I wasted that I wish I could have gotten back, and I think Aaron would agree, wasting time on people that were not securely attached, wasting wasting time with people who were so unhealed, who were so unhealthy for me, who never... um, I, I just look back and like... Find your securely attached person as soon as possible. Like stop wasting time on these men who are so toxic and who have all the most unhealthy attachment styles. Yeah. And the other caveat to that would be because I did my best and deepest work in a relationship with someone who is truly avoidant. And I don't know that my work would have came up Mm. any other way. So sometimes those are the catalysts for your deepest work. Yeah. Yeah, because I think sometimes, sometimes I feel really regretful of my my past, and sometimes I feel really grateful for it because um, I wasn't probably ready to be in a secure relationship until the one that I found, and um, I think that I think that it can help you. Like I know how grateful I am for my marriage because when it ever has gotten challenging, when you're weighing it against the other relationships you've ever been in, it comes out on top every single time. And if you haven't been exploring different types of, I don't want to say unhealthy relationships, like you're intentionally pursuing that, but if you don't know what else is out there, you don't even know how healthy the thing is that you're in, you know, like, it's like, you kind of have to know what you don't want to know what you want. Absolutely. Everybody's path is so different. And like I said, I don't think I would have healed some of the deepest parts of me if I wasn't in a relationship with someone who was so avoidant. Mm -hmm. And I had to sit with all of that. And it wasn't about him. It was what he was bringing up in in me. And as soon as I could make it not about him, my healing like quadrupled. I was just Mm. really like, wow, this is not about him. He's just representing so much inside of me. And Um, you know, it's just another, maybe more empowering or uplifting way is that no matter where you are and who you're with, there's always a good place to start if stuff is coming up. I really want to be clear about how people develop an anxious attachment style. Um, and I know we're like going in and out of covering it, but I know that people are here to just have us dissect this to the brim. So, is having a one parent who is depressed potentially, which I think a lot of people listening are, have suffered from postpartum, had a mother who suffered from postpartum or just depression in general from one parent. What is the main factor that leads to an anxiously attached person? Inconsistency. So if, if a parent, like my mom suffered from so postpartum, her nervous system was in what we'll call a ventral state a lot. So she was either in sympathetic or shut down. If she was in depression, her state was not attuning or like feeling connected to me, you know, good enough. So mothers can, it's truly not their fault. But if there's this level of inconsistency, um, I don't know if I'm going to get my needs met sometimes and not always. Um, that's when the the infant learns, like, I can't really trust disconnection. And then as an adult, you're like, oh, he's not going to call me back. Or And so you have a somatic anticipation of abandonment or disconnection, or I can't like learn to rely on, you know, on this person. So you carry those nervous system responses with you into your adult life. God, that makes sense. So what are some, what are some things that parents can do to create a securely attached child? Or person eliminate stress as much as possible. I think that like 
trying to, yeah, if you have any like known stress that you know you can you can eliminate, like if you're working a lot and you can afford to work a little less, be a little bit more present, um, that definitely is good. If there's trauma or intergenerational trauma, there's not much you can do except some of your own work. Um, trying to be present for your kids as much as possible, but you can't help it if your nervous system goes into fight flight or it shuts down as a parent. And it's not that you have to be the perfect parent. There's something called rupture and repair. It's like there's a percent around 70% of attunement. And so you're not expected to be perfect. And that pressure of being perfect actually can create more problems. It's, it's really just about being attuned enough, seeing into your child and, you know, when they cry out, going towards them, not letting them get to a sympathetic cry or not letting them get to a full collapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I'm not a mom. I'm about, I will be a mom soon. I'm pregnant. And so I keep thinking about all the different parenting styles because there's so many different ways to do it. And it's very do overwhelming. Not let your, do not let your child cry to collapse, to go to sleep. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't no, feel right to me when I right. think about that. It <laughs> no, sounds you can, like study the neuroscience on that. They're basically giving up and collapsing because they're so tired. And they it's think sad. that no one's gonna, it's terrifying. You guys, no, I, Sarah, you never, no, Sarah, you never did that. No, you guys, I did, but I did it like when Valentina was eight months old because I, everyone kept telling me I had an unsleep trained child by eight months because I was like a hippie mother that had no set schedule. I like breastfed her till she was, you know, two. And I had all these people saying, you need to sleep train her. It's, it's like, she needs to have a schedule for herself. So I went to this place long story short, the only way to actually sleep train her was you like, you would let them cry, but you would go in to let them hear your voice, you know, but, okay. but like shit, I let her cry for like an hour once. Anyway, well, the first, okay. the first couple, the first couple of years though, Sarah, like sh- I think it was because, you know, she couldn't fall asleep unless one of us was in the room with her holding her hand until she fell asleep. And then we would slowly remove ourselves from the room. Like we were really doing it bad. I mean, I say we, because, you know, Sarah's young and we were all kind of trying to do it together. And we were just like, I think not doing it right. Probably. No, it was a total shit show. It was a total shit show. I think like, that's like, there's something called alloparenting. I, I think that there's so much place on just the mother. I think really we need aunts and parents and sisters, and we need people helping us because it's a lot of work. And I think putting it all on, on one person and the mom's not getting her needs met. And it's just, it's really, really hard. We're supposed to be in a village raising this child. Not only that, but we just are so quick to go, you know, postpartum depression, which is a real thing, but think about how depleted, I mean, you are literally like birth is the most, you are literally depleting yourself in the most hardcore way. And there's, we don't have enough conversations about how women need to take care of themselves postpartum, like in a real way. Like, no, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, it's just a different conversation. Yeah. Okay, question. So if you realize that you are anxiously attached and it's coming out in your relationship and your partner is an avoidant, like how do you talk to them about it? How do you improve the dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I write a lot about this and I have a lot of compassion for that dynamic because it's truly a challenging dynamic that is actually workable. What happens is an anxious person shifts into their sympathetic activation and they seek closeness, which is it's just to feel safe. They need a lot of what we call co-regulation. So they want to get back into connection to feel calm. And the avoidant people person needs space in order to regulate, like they're in sympathetic. And so they're running in the other opposite direction. So often what we have is two people's nervous system in fear at the same time, meaning the exact opposite thing that the other person needs. 
to feel safe. So the first thing is just to recognize that. Like my partner shuts down, I get activated. I, I run towards him, he runs away from me or vice versa, right? So once we start to understand the neuroscience behind, like this is my nervous system responding to his fear and we're signaling fear to each other all the time, subconsciously, right? So I could be nervous right now and Sarah can pick up on it and she doesn't even want to pick up on it, but she will because her nervous system will pick up on it. So I explained a lot of this um, around creating different, you know, different ways to talk to your partner when this is happening, different ways to create pause, learning how to not personalize it so much, even though it's it's really painful in the moment, creating what we call dual awareness. Like my partner's shutting down. He's in fear. I'm in fear. What can I do to not pour more gasoline on this? What can he do? Like what kind of dialogue can we have so we can come back to the table and hopefully get back into connection? And it's a like, this is 80% of what I'm working with in couples counseling. So this is, this is a very common pattern and it's really comes down to fear states and what, what happens in our nervous system when we're in fear states and anxious people tend to want to get back into connection desperately and avoidant people tend to want to get space to kind of regulate their nervous system. So it's, it's a hard combination. Are there two attachment styles that just should not even attempt to be together or, or. I think that it's more of a question of how early is the wounding and how severe is the nervous system response and how capable is the other person to not respond simultaneously. Uh, Very extreme anxious and a very extreme avoidant are a pretty horrible combination. And I won't get into the wheel of attachment, but can shift you into a disorganized place. So like I might be able to deal with someone who's avoidant. I've got some security, but if he goes to extreme avoidance, he could shift me from anxious to disorganized. So, you know, it's, it's really the severity of the match and the behaviors that are coming up. You know, I I hear about, you know, partners that are shutting down for weeks or not communicating, or there's something called the turn back or the the blank stare, all these things, you know, if, if someone's doing them regularly and not seeking help around them, are going to wreak havoc on the other person's nervous system as well. And so if there, if you feel yourself having like anxious feelings coming up, you know, when your partner is leaving or going on a trip or when they're on their phone or on their computer or whatever it is, you know, are there, are there some good communication tips of like what to say in that moment instead of, you know, why aren't you talking to me and where are you going and what are you doing? Like, what are some healthier things to be able to say to let your partner know that you're kind of feeling a little flared up right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you're more on the anxious and you can identify that having a conversation that that's part of you and actually more reassurance and having a secure partner who can give you reassurance will actually lead to needing less assurance. So if you have a partner that I'm like, I need a hug and they're like, sure, I'll come over and give you a hug. It will calm your nervous system down and you'll less likely need another hug. Right. But if you have an avoidant partner and you're like, I need a hug and they're like, whoa, you need something from me. Mm-hmm. I might not be able to give you that hug. Well, your anxiety is going to increase. So like, I think just having nice dialogue around, like, how can I get extra reassurance? If someone really can't give you reassurance and you're very anxious, they might not be a healing relationship for you. It might just be mm-hmm. a, re- a re-injuring or wounding relationship. So you're saying, ask for what you need in that moment. Instead of saying, why are you on your phone all the time? Or like, you're not paying attention to me. Say like, hey, I need to talk about my day with or, you right now. When you're on your phone, what comes up for me is I have some anxiety. I'm missing you. I wish we were more in connection versus, 
get off your phone and you're always on your forces like these attacking like you can be on your phone another human being can do whatever they want but it's bringing something up inside of me and if, if you are curious can i share that with you and if that person can get off their phone and get curious they might get back into connection with you Mm, getting curious. I've, this is not the first time I'm hearing this, that like the best thing to do when something comes up for yourself or for your partner or in your relationship, or if you can be really cute, we actually just had a sex therapist on and she was saying that, um, if your partner is talking about something that they want, you know, that you don't have in your relationship sexually, something that's exciting to them or interesting to them or different for them or something they want to adjust instead of being reactive and defensive and feeling rejected by it, be curious, right? Like if they're, if your partner wants that thing, then like analyze it with them and understand that thing and and be curious about it because we can't help how we feel. You know, like that's something I, my DBT therapist is always telling me, why would you be mad at yourself for having a feeling? Like you can't control that feeling coming up. You can't be mad at yourself or embarrassed that you felt mad or scared or vulnerable. Like these are out of our control, you know? So if you can be, it's something I really had to work on in, in my marriage is like, if Simon had a feeling come up, I'd be like, but why? What's wrong with you? Like, why who, did your parents do something to make you feel that way? Like, I I was just wanted to like squash it as opposed to just letting it sit and being interested in how to fix it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And again, it goes back to being vulnerable, you know, and getting out of blame and saying, okay, this is what's coming up for me right now and having safe enough partners to do that with. Yeah. Right. So the first step is, is picking someone who's safe. And then the second step is sort of healing each other in that relationship. You got to find someone who, who you feel safe with. So in the spirit of it being a new year and you looking for ways to start living like a little bit of a cleaner lifestyle, bedding should be really high up on the list of little changes to make. Bowl and Branch are some of the softest sheets. They are the softest sheets I own. They're the only sheets on all the beds in my house. I'm even using their towels, their bath mats, their down actual pillows, like the inserts. I'm using Bowl and Branch for those too. I'm Bowl and Branch in all aspects of my life and home. They make the softest, most luxurious sheets No toxins, no harsh chemicals. They are using the rarest 100% cotton that is traceable from family farm to your family home. There really is an unmatched softness and they get softer with every wash. So sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your first order when you use promo code FOSTER15 at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowl and branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H dot com promo code FOSTER15. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but it's the new year and I need my mind right. I, I, I don't know what I would do without therapy. I really don't. The older I get, the more I need it and the more that I wish I had access to it earlier. When I was in my 20s, that was not a thing. Having a therapist was for rich people. There just weren't options for most people to have someone to talk to and have someone to listen to your problems and have someone to help guide you and have someone to help you make sense of why you are the way you are and how you can better yourself and how you can... I just... I cannot say enough good things about therapy. You know how I feel about therapy. I did an episode with my therapist, which please go back and listen to it if you haven't. 
But I love that companies like BetterHelp are democratizing therapy for everybody. There's nobody that shouldn't be able to access the help they need to get their mind right. BetterHelp is just such an amazing company. They're doing it on a scale that is just so impressive. I know multiple people that are going to BetterHelp for therapy. And what's so great about it is they really hold your hand through finding the right match for you. Not every therapist is going to be right for you. And they're very cool about you changing until you find the person that you click with the most. So I would really recommend you giving this a try. It's a new year. This is a great thing to implement into your life. So visit betterhelp.com foster today to get 10% off your first entire month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Foster. Um, you guys, I since I'm an avoidant, I'd really love to know what are, why am I an avoidant? What did my parents do to make me, <laughs> what did they do to make me an avoidant? Because I am the poster child for that attachment style. Mm-hmm. And just gonna before you answer, Jessica, I would like to say, Sarah and I come at this from different places where I am so not in a place of like looking at why and blaming. Like, I don't give a shit what my parents did at this point or why they did what they did. I just want to live a better life today. Regardless of what happened back then, I just want to figure out how to live today. No, and I but do think- understanding wh- why you are the way you are gives you compassion for yourself because I have had a lot of shame around being that way. Sure. I feel like avoidance get the worst end of the stick too. They really do. And they suffer so much inside. Like they desperately want to be close, but, um, your dad seems a little bit avoidant. Mm-hmm. And he admits that. And he, he came by that honestly, like, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And your mom seems a little bit anxious. So, um, the combination is, you know, maybe there wasn't a lot of attunement. There was a little bit more fear or unavailability going on very, very early on. And we internalize both our parents. Um, we take in their essence. And so if vulnerability was not encouraged in your home, I think that's like anxious or avoidant, like vulnerability, not being encouraged, looking into what are your feelings inside. It's okay to have all your feelings will basically emotionally kind of impact anybody um, and I don't think that you guys are unique. I think we, and myself included, I grew up in, we grew up in a culture where like our parents didn't have emotional intelligence. They weren't sitting down and saying, Hey, what happened to you today at school? All of that made sense. Mm-hmm. You want to cry about it? Absolutely. Crawl all you want. I'm right here. Like, you know, they're like, have a cookie or, you know, straighten up or be more productive or, well, let's fight that bully. They're never, they weren't like, holding space because no one held space for them. And I don't know, you guys might be a little bit younger than me, but I feel like our parents grew up in a generation where they just didn't get that. And so they couldn't give what they didn't have. So now people, I can speak for myself, but what I'm seeing is a lot of people are trying to heal intergenerational or just trying to heal. And it's, it is a, it's a process. And a lot of it is forming a lot of compassion for our parents and seeing that they're very much sometimes in their own survival states and really just doing the best that they can. I just want to pat myself on the back for a second. I really think that I have broken the cycle with my girls. Josie, my eight-year-old, she has designated time for herself that she can be alone and um, deal with her feelings. And like, she literally says, okay, 
I'm going to go do my thing. She calls it her thing. She says, I'm going to go do my thing. And she goes in her room and she knows that is her time to just feel how she wants. I mean, she knows she can feel how she wants to feel 24 hours a day, but she's so in touch with her needs. Well, she has, she has little anxious things that she does and she likes to do them privately and not in front of people. Because but we encourage her. We're like, do it. Do, totally. do whatever you need to do. Do what you need to do. She literally has at eight years old learned how to meet her needs. Mm-hmm. I know. It's really amazing. So what do you, as a, as an avoidant, right. Who doesn't want to be an avoidant. Um, what are, what would you say to people listening who, you know, I am lucky enough that I have a therapist, how, what are ways to slowly kind of change that behavior and rewire since we can rewire, right? I mean, you've said it, we can rewire. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. It's like anxious people are avoidant too. We're avoiding our abandonment wound every single way we can, right? Like that everybody is a trying to avoid suffering in some way, shape or form. And so it's about becoming conscious of, you know, who can I lean on to kind of hold that space? Have me look at it, help me sit through the uncomfortability. How can I continue to show commitment in that um, place? And how do I, again, form enough, safe enough connection and places where I can continue to do the work. And it sounds like Sarah, you're already doing it and that you already have a very safe person in your life that's encouraging you. And it does. I'm an anxious person who can relate to the way you feel when you go to therapy. It's, it's freaking hard. Right. And so, um, I think, I think you're already doing it. And I think, you know, safe people, safe places is really where it's at and, you know, being courageous enough to get vulnerable. And we have to feel a sense of safety in order to do that is how the work begins. And then once we shift a little and our paradigm shifts or our outlook shifts, we're like, oh, I think I want more of this. And hopefully we keep getting called because we have an inherent wisdom inside our body to know what to want to heal. And we keep getting called to more healing people. We'll attract more people who are more in their system of being present for us. And we'll follow a path that's unique for us, but usually there's an inherent knowing that, you know, I need to go this way, or I, I like the way I felt with this person. I need to go back or I was vulnerable. didn't kill me and it opened me up and I need to do more of that. I really feel for all the, there's like a, an epidemic of loneliness. I really feel for people that are so lonely because I would never have been able to get to the other side or attempt, I'm attempting to get to the other side without the constant dedication of people that love me, you know, or that I think love me. I mean, you know, I don't know. Like I, I, I just really feel for people that feel alone because a lot of people write us, a lot of people write me that they've never felt so alone. And how do you get through this alone or feeling like you're alone? I guess that I guess the thing is you got to just you're really not alone. There are people that love you. You're just not tapping into those re relationships because you're not fully showing yourself. Yeah, and some people are just really alone. Like and that, and that the reality is we want to live in a world where like, oh, if I if I pray the teacher will come, you know, and we can go to A meetings or we can go to meetings and we can try to find community, but there are a lot of people out there that are truly too isolated. And not biologically, we're not supposed to be that isolated and they truly are too alone. That's a can be an earlier ego state. It can be a trauma state. And it can also be the reality of someone's life. I, you know, I work from home, like I've had periods in my life where I was too alone. Like it literally was the reality of my life. So 
Connection is our biological imperative. We are wired to be in so much more community than we are. We are we live in a culture that fosters success, independence, self-reliance, all the things that are counterintuitive to what we need to thrive. And many people are stuck like trying to achieve something and get to some sense of well-being. And they're like, they're not even aware that it's community and connection that actually is how we feel like we're, we can thrive in the world. There's external loneliness, like you're saying, that is like can have many factors, but there's also just an internal loneliness that comes from being saying to yourself, why am I like this? And having reading a book like your book about an anxious attachment style, I think doing a lot of reading and research on the things that are going on in your life internally helps you feel less alone because you go, oh, I'm not the only one who feels this way. I'm not the only one who does this in relationships. The whole thing of why am I like this? That's to me the loneliest feeling that there is because you think you're the only person making these mistakes over and over again. So I think that these are the best ways to start feeling less alone because you feel connected to other people who are making the same mistakes. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I wrote about it in my book when I was in the hospital, when I was like in my teens, I picked up facing codependency. And I felt, I think this is the reason why I wrote a book. Like I literally for the first time had some answers to why I thought I was going crazy. And, you know, I wrote this book and as the author, I'm with you. Like the language that I use is that we're together throughout the whole book. I'm anxious. I'm with you. Like I'm not, I'm not this like professional that's separating myself with you to help you feel less alone. And you can't heal alone. You, we, we are wounded in relationships and we need to heal in relationships. And I was trying to be a healing voice through the book. And hopefully then you leads you to another healing relationships and so forth. But you're absolutely right. And yeah, I thought I was going crazy half my life. So it's nice to know that you're most people do. Yes, most people do. Also, I think do. that so many people are, yes, of course, like nature versus nurture, right? We 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 have these conversations all the time. But I, you know, there was someone recently who ha- got out of a toxic relationship and she was like, I am, I am depressed. Not only am I depressed, I may be even a step further, like suicidal. Okay. And this is not to uh, we have to be very careful around these conversations. So I don't want to, you know, diminish because that is a very real chemical imbalance for a lot of people. But she, there was just something in me where I was like, look, okay, yes, of course you need your medication, all those things, but I'm telling you, we need to get you out of your environment, right? Out of your environment and around community and having structure. Your life will change Once you are removed from the toxic situation, you get a job where you are surrounded by community and you have structure because you have to show up every single day. When I tell you this person's life has literally changed from from just those three factors, it is community and structure. And she she had been diagnosed with like eight different, you know, personality disorders. And I wouldn't say she suffers from any of them today. So we, again, we're not diminishing people that 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 is real. Your environment is everything. It is everything. This person, a a psychologist said, you are bipolar. You are um, uh, borderline. Borderline. Okay. You are basically this, this young girl is going, oh, I'm fucked. And Three different, three things she did to change her life, right? Everything I just said, I don't need to repeat myself. She is a different person. When you are lonely and when you have nowhere to show up for, nowhere to be, nothing to wake up for, nothing to wake up and and have to be at, who wouldn't be depressed? Who wouldn't be depressed in that in those situations? You're in a toxic environment, no structure, no nothing to live for, nowhere to go, no friends, no family, no community. Anybody would be. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. 
Okay, as we're winding as we're winding down, I wanted to just ask about um Sarah, I don't know if you want to choose like one question you want to ask, but um Oh my god, what? <clears throat> what I really want to know is um does an anxious parent create an anxious child? Does an avoidant parent create an avoidant child? Yeah, I mean, yes, typically there's some mirroring. So like we connect infant to mother, right brain to right brain. So there's a lot of wiring that gets mirrored. So your mother's brain or your primary caregiver's brain and their wiring tends to very much influence your wiring. So without getting into the labels, like that alone, like how how that primary person is wired is a direct, we mirror those wirings as we're developing because human beings do don't come out fully developed. We're like, really, we're like, probably we're developing for many, many years still outside a womb. And we're very much impacted by the primary caregivers, especially by our, I'm going to say our mother, but our closest primary caregiver. And however she's wired are mirrored through a lot of our brain. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So, Sarah, do you have your other question? I don't know. There's a million. I'm just... I know. Well, okay. So a second part to that, if you're still looking, is, um, you know, something I feel like parents do a lot is, is like they overcompensate for their childhood, right? So they had an avoidant parent or they had lacking in their childhood. So then they're suffocating their child with love to make sure that they never feel that way. You know, how do we know if we're overcompensating and pushing too hard against our own childhood? Because then that just creates a whole new set of issues. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like a form of projection too. Um, it's such a sweet thing where we've suffered a certain way in our childhood and then we don't want our child to suffer in the same way, but instead we didn't deal with the suffering that we endured. So instead of dealing with what's going on inside of us, we're trying to protect something we love outside of us from re-experiencing our biggest wound. So it's complicated. Um, and how do you work with that? You start to recognize like, you know, where is this, what is driving my behavior right now? And why is this so important for me? And is this really about my child or is this about what comes up for me? And am I uncomfortable with my child being uncomfortable with the things that hurt me? And there's a balance and a fine line between that being self-reflective. A handful of people wrote in, which is so funny, asking a very similar question, like how to play it cool and confident when you really like someone, you know, it's so interesting as women, I think, and I always was like that. I was like, God forbid I ever just say, God, I like you so much, you know, in the beginning, like, I think a lot of women, they want to know, like, how can I appear cool and confident when really what I want to say to them is honestly, I think you appear cool and confident when you show your vulnerability. Yeah. I think that's a sign of confidence, right? Yes. And I almost feel like be authentic to yourself as much as you can. And if they're not comfortable with vulnerability or they run away because you express interest, they're not for you. Next, go on to the next guy. Right. And I'm not the best at answering this because I tend to be, I'm pretty vulnerable in that way. I think people are really comfortable being vulnerable with me. Cause I'm like, Oh, I like you. Or that was really sweet. What you did. Like I'll put myself out there. And sometimes there's like, Oh, I really put myself out there. But then I remind myself, Oh, you know, if they're not into it, they're not for me. That's it. And you have to be confident enough to know there's another match out there or many other matches. And I'm not just talking romantic. I mean, like friendships or anything, you know, putting yourself out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of women listening want to have healthy relationships with their girlfriends. And I think relationships are relationships, right? Like 
you got to treat your female relationships in a similar form as you're treating your, 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 whatever, what do you want to call them? Your romantic relationships. Yeah. Romantic relationships. One of the vulnerable things I've been doing lately with some of my female relationships is just expressing gratitude. Like every once Mm. in a while, when like someone really shows up for me, I think that's a level of vulnerability. Like I I might not do it in person. I might, I mean, I'm a therapist and we do a lot of gratitude in person, but I might send it in a text. Like your friendship just means so much to me. And like, you know, that is vulnerable when you're really just expressing and looking at your, your friendships and knowing no one's perfect, but what does this friendship bring to you? And kind of just expressing Mm -hmm. gratitude around that. This woman mm-hmm. wrote me recently and all she said was, she goes, I miss you. And this is not someone I'm like that close with. It's someone who I'm, I definitely really like. She really likes me. We've had great times together. She's not one of my best friends, but she just wrote me like, I really miss you. And it can, it made me feel so connected to her that I'm like, I think I'm going to make her my best friend. I don't know. Like it just felt so genuine and it felt so good to hear that. Whereas I would have thought, I'd be too nervous to send that to somebody thinking like, oh God, is that desperate? Is that weird to tell this woman who I like, but, and who I would like to be closer with, but I'm not that close with that I miss her or that I'd love to connect with her. I don't know. I just think. Fucking like a good avoidant. <laughs> like a good, like, like a good avoidant. Exactly. <laughs> and like, try it out. If she's a safe person, you might say, I love hearing that you miss me. Like when we can get together, I miss you too, you know? Oh, I could never say that. I love hearing that you miss me. I don't, I'm not there yet. I need, I need therapy twice a week to get there. <laughs> what about like, oh, that's so sweet. Let's hang soon. Yeah. I think I was like, oh, exclamation, exclamation. I mean, everybody's different. Sarah's like, I have a good friend who's dating right now. And I like, she's asking me, how would you respond? And I'd be like, oh, I do this. And she's like, oh, I would never do that. Like, that's way too vulnerable. And I'm like, I just weed out the people who aren't vulnerable right from the beginning. But I get it. We're all scared of being rejected. But why? Mm-hmm. We're all scared of being rejected. Okay, you guys, if since we are at the end, uh, you know, Aaron over here, always having, you know, double booking us all because of her crazy life. What would we want sort of one amazing takeaway to be from this episode? Oh, God. A lot of, a lot of pressure. Sarah, lo- Sarah loves to put pressure. All of our behaviors make sense. Um, connection is a biological imperative that you, if you're reading this, like, or you're listening and you can relate, you're so not alone. Um, if you're struggling with codependency, there are adaptive strategies by my book, <laughs> but like, there's a mm-hmm. lot, there's just not, say not, not just my book. There are so much resources out there to help you take away the shame and start to really understand like how brilliantly you adapted in the world and how, you know, how to get back in touch with yourself and hopefully not self-abandon in your next relationship. Can I just say as three women coming to you who are mo- much older than a lot of you guys listening, we're all, I mean, at least Aaron and I are in our forties. Um, it gets better. It freaking gets better. I could have never imagined at even 27 that I would be as healed as I am to th- today. I would have never imagined it. I just could have never, I just never thought that it was possible. And it is. I love that you say that. And I agree that it, it's gotten better in my life, but through a lot of work, it doesn't just get better. You got to make it get better. Yeah. It gets, it gets better when you do the, when you really are willing to go there. And I think I'm, I'm 40, I'm early forties too. And I think that, you know, forties will probably be the best hopefully decade mm-hmm. ever because you're just so much more confident in, in yourself. Um, 
it's so much harder in your 20s. I, I would not want to go back to oh, so hard. I would not want to go back to my 20, 20 no. 20s. I, no. It's hard. It's hard. Definitely. I mean, I'd not. like to have my ass from the 20s, but other than that, I do not want to go back to my 20s. So Jessica, can you please tell everyone where they can find you, follow you, work with you, visit your um, institute, buy your book? Sure. I mean, I'm everywhere online. It's Jessica Baum. LMHC is my Instagram. I have a company in South Florida called the Relationship Institute of Palm Beach. I have an international coaching company, BeSelfFull.com. I have a group of coaches that work with me and therapists. And my book is everywhere in I don't know, 11 countries and so many languages, but you can get Amazing. it on Amazon and it's doing so well in the world. And I just, I'm happy. Congratulations. It's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. You've thank you so that, much for being here. You've got that beautiful Florida skin. I'm obsessed. <sighs> yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Jessica, thank so you so nice much for you. being here. This is a great conversation. People are going to learn a lot and grow from thank it. Thank you so much for having me. You guys. Thank you so much for being right. here. Thank you for being here. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to this episode. Hope you liked it as much as we did. We have a big, big, big request for you. We we do. Please go leave a review. It makes a big difference for us. I was about to say, Aaron, don't sound so desperate, but we are a little desperate. We are a little desperate. We need you to leave a review. It's really important. And we don't ask you for anything. Two seconds. By the way, send a screenshot of your review and maybe we'll post it. Okay. Maybe we'll call you. Maybe we'll... Why are you rolling your eyes? Just every episode is going to say that though. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This podcast is executive produced by... Can you not use that voice? I'm sorry, I'm trying to sound... Yeah, but you don't make it sexy. This podcast is executive produced by... Can you... Do you have a normal voice? Yeah. Aaron Foster, Sarah Foster, and Allison Bresnick. I'll take over. Our Our associate producer is Montana McBearney. Our audio engineer is Josh Windish. This show is hosted by Simplecast. See, that didn't sound nice. That sounded great.